So for me, it's really about understanding what your own values are and then trying as as intentionally as possible to bring your consumption, employment, uh, interaction choices in line with those values. And to me, that's what being a good person means, that you look for, actively look for and seek alignment between your own values and the way you live. Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hey everyone, it's Gavin Cosgrave, your host on the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. Thanks for tuning in, as always, and today you're in for a treat. We've had some great uh, professor interviews recently, and this is another one of those. Um, You're going to love this conversation. Today I'm speaking with Joellen Posner, who is an assistant professor of management at Santa Clara's Levy School of Business. Dr. Posner has an impressive set of degrees, a PhD in management and organizations from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, an MBA from New York University, a master's in economics from Johns Hopkins, and a bachelor's in international economics from Georgetown. Uh, Her research topics are wide and varied, but she focuses on organizational ethics and misconduct, as well as social movements in business and leadership. In this conversation, we start out by talking about uh, how working in Russia gave Dr. Posner a new perspective on following the rules and what that means for individuals and businesses. We touch on how businesses can start social movements and uh, how students can gain a new perspective on their career. We talk a lot about um, finding companies with values that align with your own values and how to really live in a, in a consistent way where your, your actions, your work, and all parts of your life are congruent with what you believe. And that was kind of my big takeaway from this conversation. Um, I think you're really going to love Dr. Posner's uh, style and stories. So thanks for listening, and here's the conversation. Well, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Um, maybe to to start out, w- was there any spark that got you interested in the all the the research subjects you deal with, or in being a professor in kind of the business yeah. academia world? Yeah, there was actually. So I started off my professional life as a development economist and somebody who was working in uh, the transition of the economic and financial sectors in the former Soviet Union. So I have a master's in um, international relations and and uh, and economics and Eastern European studies. And um, I worked after my master's for two years in Moscow for a firm that did uh, uh, consulting and training for the financial services sector in transition economies. This was mm-hmm. in the mid-90s, late 90s. Mm-hmm. So I worked there in New York for a couple of months, and then I moved to Moscow with the firm. And I was a program officer. I was working with the central bank and and commercial banks and the Securities Commission and bringing uh, experts, bankers, lawyers, uh, regulators to work with those clients Mm -hmm. um, on 
discreet topics. Um, so it was a lot of fun. And while I was there, I spoke really good Russian at the time. Mm-hmm. And at that time, and actually still today, in Moscow, everybody is an Uber. So you don't want to get into a, a taxi with a meter. You want to raise your hand and like hail down somebody who's willing to drive you someplace. Mm-hmm. And then you have a little chat and, and you negotiate a price and you get there. Mm-hmm. And most of the time um, when I got into those cars, people would hear my Russian and hear that I had an accent and be curious about, you know, what I was doing in Moscow. And I would tell them the name of the company, which was kind of uh, long and confusing and not a good translation into Russian. And I would explain a little bit about what we did if they asked. And most of the time people were like confused or turned off and they just kind of, you know, dropped it. Mm -hmm. But one time this driver said, oh, okay, you're working with the the banks and the securities commission and you're teaching them what exactly and i said we're you know trying to introduce um western standard mm-hmm. banking practices and regulation practices to bring your economy into line with the existing global systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, that's fascinating. So tell me, do you teach them the real rules or the official rules? Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I don't understand what you're talking about, essentially. And he he had this really well-elaborated idea of what it took to get ahead in the world. And his understanding was that the official rules that are, you know, written in the law books and that mm-hmm. you learn in school um, are for suckers and they're the way to keep you down and oppressed. And there's a set of unofficial but real rules that actually drive the global economy. Mm-hmm. And if you can master those, then that's how you get ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there are two interesting aspects of this. One is that that viewpoint is now completely apparent in the way that the uh, Russian leadership is dealing with global geopolitics, right? Like mm-hmm. that's kind of the the, the sense of, uh, of lack of trust in institutions and confusion about what's really driving global phenomena mm-hmm. um, that we see when we read the newspaper about, you know, what's going on in, in the political sphere. Mm-hmm. But it also, to the 25-year-old me, who was a, a kind of good girl raised in rule-following America, mm-hmm. uh, or what I understood to be rule-following America, it was revel- revelatory in that I understood for the first time that not everybody understands the rules as they exist, or that mm-hmm they actually exist. Mm -hmm. So there was this idea, not of cultural relativism, but about the the cultural context in which rules operate Mm -hmm. that determines how appropriate it is and how acceptable it is to follow the rules or to break them. Mm -hmm. And that not everybody shared an understanding of what that meant. And that's really consequential for understanding the world around you. So what that implies and what it kind of inspired in me was this idea that there are entities and people who can break the rules and get away with it. And there are ways to manipulate the rules, either directly or through the interpretation of your own behavior Mm. that you project to the outside world that make it easier to get away with something. And that might be, there are times when that's detrimental to the world and there there are times when that's appropriate. Um, And so that really got me interested in uh, organizational misconduct, in um, ideas of trust and leadership. And ultimately, it got me interested in ideas about social movements and how they interact with markets. Because if you think about social movements, they're really um, kind of popular 
efforts to redefine the rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're legitimate, right? We, we generally see them as legitimate. Um, so it's not as if we perceive them to be evil or nefarious, mm-hmm. which is interesting, right? right? So sometimes breaking the rules is uh, is to everybody's benefit, and mm-hmm. it takes rule breaking to make uh, enduring change. And because mm-hmm. I, I study organizations, I'm, I'm interested in uh, in how that plays out in, in, uh, in markets. Yeah, wow. No, that's that's fascinating. And around Silicon Valley, we obviously see plenty of companies that are that are breaking the rules sometimes in in bad ways. But like you mentioned, there's also uh, there's also new new fields, new areas that the rules haven't been defined yet. Right. And there's a lot of ethical questions around, you know, a lot of like biological engineering or. Yeah, just like the ethics of artificial intelligence, all these new areas, right, that uh, don't exactly have a rule book. And, and then even in some areas that do, they might be unjust, right? Or we, we might say, hey, this is destroying our earth. You're not treating people fairly, right? So, yeah, do you want to maybe say a little more about social movements? I don't know. I feel like a lot of Santa Clara students, too, are interested in making some kind of change, right? Or people feel called or passionate about a certain issue. So, like, what can we what can we learn about successful social movements and how those work? Sure. So the social movements that I study are really um, a, a specific kind of movement that we call identity movements. They're more about consumption um, and using uh, your your dollars to make choices that reveal something about how the world should work. So, for example, I study, um, I have a paper on organic agriculture. I have a paper on um, craft brewing and uh, two projects in the works on bean-to-bar chocolate, which is um, chocolate uh, that's that's produced with um, an eye to improving the conditions of chocolate farmers and and the quality of chocolate, but that's kind of secondary. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are those are uh, kind of market driven ways to enact social change, right? We want better environmental conditions. We want social justice. We want um, children and adults not to become slaves on cacao plantations um, near the equator. Um, those are small ways that we can use our consumption choices. And if you're an entrepreneur, your your business choice. Uh, to make the world a better place. I think those are things that are really easy to um, to understand if you're just paying attention. And so I encourage people to kind of look around at the consumption choices they're making, understand who it is that's making your beer. You know, is it, do you believe that there should be three or four global uh, beverage companies that dominate production across the world? Or do you believe that um, small batch production is important? Either one of those is okay. There's no more, I don't have a moral judgment about that in particular. But if you think you have a value about uh, localism, about authenticity, about um, small entrepreneurship and not kind of global hegemony of, of industrial producers, um, then it's worthwhile paying attention and really investigating who you're uh, consuming from and what that implies about um, about your relationship to the world. Again, like we don't need to make every consumption choice based on, uh, you know, uh, the morals of the the producer, but um, but we also don't need only to drink Budweiser, right? Mm-hmm. And and just because it's cheap and available doesn't necessarily mean that it's the the most ethical choice. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm kind of over over moralizing beer consumption. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, we just want to drink, um, <laughs> so you can make your choices appropriately. Um, my my research doesn't really um, look at. Uh, more specifically policy oriented social movements yeah. but the tactics that the uh, identity movement uh, producers employ are very similar to those of um, of those kinds of more traditional kinds of social movements like civil rights movement or the gay rights mm-hmm. movement or the mm-hmm. feminist movement um, and I think the the way to think about our place in um, 
in that sphere is to start from a position of really interrogating our own values. So it's not the case that every one of us needs to be uh, an active uh, feminist movement participant and agitating constantly and taking large scale actions for um, to enact social change. It would be nice if we all could, mm-hmm. but we all have limited capacity. And as I, I think, you know, as, as long as we're not uh, working against those movements, we can feel reasonable about ourselves. But if you think that you are really interested in making those uh, causes uh, more successful if and moving the needle on social change, for example, um, then uh, it, it kind of behooves us to um, think carefully about the match between our own values and the values of the companies and organizations that we interact with. And my philosophy is that most people want to th- be good people. They want to do, they want to make good choices. And most people like to think of themselves as good, implying that they make good choices. But most people don't think about whether they're making good choices on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So um, so for me, it's really about understanding what your own values are, and then trying as, as intentionally as possible to bring your consumption, employment, mm-hmm. uh, interaction choices in line with those values. And to me, that's what being a good person means, that you mm-hmm. look for, actively look for, and seek alignment between your own values and the way you live. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so to kind of transition a little to uh, to students and and leadership. So you've you've studied um, business and, and leadership uh, formally quite a bit, but I've also I've heard people say, you know, like you can only you can only learn so much in in college, and really most of what you'll you'll learn about uh, about business or leadership is in in the real world, right? And I'm I'm obviously getting a business degree, so I found some value in it. But yeah, is it is it worth studying? leadership in uh, in college and what's the best way you think to go about that yeah so um you know I my real philosophy about college is that you should study the thing that you're interested in um because this is the last chance that you have to do that you know for for a very long time right and you know unless you take a big career break you're gonna uh, get set on a track um, with your first job that's going to lead you to a series of subsequent choices that kind of limit you and so exploring is really important having said that if you're thinking about professional education and college as a professional con- credential and if you're a business major in particular um, you really should be studying leadership and and management and mm-hmm. and the uh, the sorts of topics that we teach with, with a great deal of attention and um, an intent because it turns out that uh, you know anybody can study accounting from a textbook or online or through an online course or by you know apprenticing with an accounting firm you know or or working in an accounting firm. Um, those are those kind of technical skills are relatively easy to acquire. That's not to say that they're not valuable. They absolutely are. But when you get out there, what you quickly realize is that technical skills only get you so far. And what makes the difference between getting set off on uh, a really successful career path early or or waiting till later or maybe never are the um, interpersonal skills that we teach in in a management major or management classes. So leadership is definitely one of them. Negotiation, uh, organizational behavior, strategy, all of these are sets of behaviors and skills that you will acquire if you're attentive over the course of a career 
or you can study them now and get a leg up. Mm-hmm. So I teach uh, a leadership class. It's a kind of leadership and organizational behavior class. And um, I taught it uh, two years ago to a, a, a class of um, masters of finance students. Mm-hmm. And most of them were relatively young and, you know, a couple of years out of undergrad. And one of them was much more mature. And when I read through my evaluations at the end of the quarter, um, I got one comment, which I could tell was from that more mature student who said, there is nothing in this class that you won't learn from 20 years on the job. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's precisely right. <laughs> and that means that I that I do a very good job <laughs> in teaching you everything you need to know for the next 20 years and more, right? So like, to me, that was the best endorsement that, mm-hmm. I, that I'm giving uh, my students valuable material. Mm-hmm. You, if you're attentive and you're, and you're really kind of looking around you all the time, you will figure out most of the stuff that we teach you in a management class, but you will be so much more effective as an employee and able to lead mm-hmm. your team, your, your peers, and manage up if you have those skills before you get to the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's a, a scholar, Ron Burt, who likes to say that there are actors and their scenery and uh, in life, and I would much rather that all of our students here at Santa Clara and, you know, where, wherever this podcast is being heard, mm-hmm. um, I would much rather that you're actors, you know, that you have the capacity to take charge of your situation mm-hmm. um, and to actively manage the world around you mm-hmm. so that you're not scenery, right? Being scenery means that other people are acting upon you, other mm-hmm. forces are acting upon you, and that you don't have much agency. Mm-hmm. And without uh, the the kinds of skills that uh, a leadership or negotiations or a strategy course give you, it's really hard to quickly become an actor, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's You're going to spend a lot more time as scenery. So all of the things that we do in these sorts of classes, all of the material that we teach is really about recognizing, um, diagnosing the situation around you um, and giving you a toolkit of behaviors that can help you manage your way through those situations, whether that's stepping up and taking charge of a decision-making process or um, modifying your interpersonal style so that you can get people who are not motivated to be more motivated, um, how to uh, take and give feedback in a more constructive way so that you can get the best out of yourself and also the best out of the team around you. All of those are really important behaviors that have very little to do with your personality mm-hmm. or your education or your predispositions. They're really, it's like cognitive behavioral therapy. Like it's understanding how you need to react to a given situation to to learn from it and move through it in a productive way. Mm-hmm. And those are those are things that anybody can learn. But mm-hmm. the, the quicker you learn them, the more easy it is to integrate them into your everyday behavior and to be much more effective in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's important that students maybe broaden their definition of leadership to realize that, you know, you don't need to be in a quote unquote leadership position to display uh, qualities of a leader, right? Like a lot of students might, you might be at the bottom of the the ladder of, of careers when you get out of school, right? But can, is it possible to even then to be a leader if you're not in a leadership position? Absolutely. My uh, philosophy around teaching this material is that it's not about being the boss. It's about taking charge. Mm-hmm. And you can take charge wherever you sit in the organizational hierarchy or, you know, whether you're ever in a position of structural power. You can enact um, leadership and make change happen and make people 
willing and and excited to uh, follow you, to to follow your vision, to um, to do things for you, right? Mm-hmm. To accomplish what you want to get accomplished. If you have the right arsenal of persuasion tactics, if you uh, understand um, how uh, how pe- uh, different people respond, and and really have emotional intelligence enough to adjudicate who's going to respond mm-hmm. to what stimulus. Um, I, the way that I'm talking about it sounds a little bit Machiavellian and and um, and instrumental, but it's mm-hmm. actually just the way the world works, right? It's not the case that we're always in adversarial situations where we need to get one over on somebody else. But with the idea that somebody might be trying to get one over on you, wouldn't you like to understand what it is that they're doing and how it works? And Mm -hmm. wouldn't you like to be able to exert that influence for yourself? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily to your own personal ends, but to help your team do better, to help your business unit do better, Mm -hmm. to help your firm become more competitive. Mm -hmm. You know, those are, that's, that's how we make our way through the world. And mm. I think it's it's really important for all of us to, um, you know, just build those skills as early as we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that relates a lot more to, uh, to psychology, it seems. But I think, you know, people might have the false mindset that everything in business is very rational and logical, but, but really, we're finite humans with all our cognitive biases and the the social skills probably matter more in the long run, like you said. Yeah. I mean, all of us are subject to cognitive biases. All of us have limited cognitive capacity. No matter how rational we try to be, our decision-making is always flawed. We never have good enough data. We never look at it in a, in a purely rational way. And understanding how those biases work and how we can use them to our advantage and not just our personal advantage, but the advantage of our of our teams, I mean, that's, that's what makes the difference between a really successful person and an organization and a less successful one. Um, it's yeah, social psychology plays a huge role in this. Mm-hmm. But also understanding larger scale organizational dynamics make a huge mm-hmm. difference. So, you know, one of the things that I spend a lot of time talking about in my class, and not just in my uh, MBA classes, but also my exec education classes mm-hmm. for people who have been, you know, working for 20, 30 years, is getting a hands uh, a handle on organizational culture, and how it works and how it works on you and how you can change it and what you should be looking for in organizational culture. That's That has very little to do with social psychology and a lot to do with organizational systems. And so we need to understand what how those systems work so that we can make good choices. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This past summer, I was talking to a few uh, recent Santa Clara grads about career stuff. And uh, your, na- your name came up, actually, as someone that would be helpful to uh, to talk with. But I'd, I'd love to touch on this kind of idea of, of students thinking about their, their future careers. I feel like many students uh, feel like they have to fit into a very narrow set of potential career options and that they they maybe don't have a lot of agency in, in choosing those um, and just want to accept anything that comes their way. Um, additionally, I, I think most people look at maybe the, the prestige of the company or the, the job role and if it's something attainable, but I don't think many students are thinking about organizational culture. So whether it's related to the the culture of the companies you're looking at, or just like ways that students should be thinking about their future careers. Um, yeah, what w- what would you say around those two areas? Yeah, I think this is a really important um, uh, cue that we that undergrads in particular, but honestly, MBAs do the mm-hmm. same thing. We don't, we just don't pay enough attention to them because we probably don't think that deeply about them. It's true when you're finishing school, whatever level, you're worried about getting a job, about, you know, paying back your loans and making sure that you have enough money to live and all of that. And it's reasonable. Um, and also prestige clearly plays a role in our decision making. It's very easy to get, um, 
you know, starry-eyed about working for a, a firm that you admire, uh, you know, whose products you admire, whose name is well known. Um, but I, I want to come back to the idea that we need to understand our own values and really know who we are. And and if we're conscious and thoughtful about what's important to us as individual people, and everybody's values are different from each other's, right? And whatever values you have are legitimate and important to you, that's the most important thing. Um, the if we're if we're not thinking uh, about our um, employment through the lens of those values, it's very easy to get into either a mismatch or get involved with a company that's going to lead us to a, a different way of thinking that we might not really be okay with. And because that happens slowly um, and gradually, we're often not attentive to it until it's too late. So what do I mean by that? College is probably your most idealistic time in life, right? You have the whole world in front of you and you're exploring all kinds of ideas and, and possibilities, and that's really exciting. And this is where you um, start to become who you really are. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the values that drive you uh, in college are really important to um, to you not just now but in the future, right? If this is becoming who you who you really are, then it's worthwhile taking stock of what that means to you. What what do you think is important? Is integrity really important to you? Is is profitability really important to you? Is family really important to you? Is it about justice or fairness or competition or individualism, all of those are reasonable values, right? And and whatever array of, uh, of, of values we hold, that's what makes us who, who we are. There's no reason for us to say that's not an appropriate set of values or to try to change that. It is worth understanding what those values are. So if you take a couple of minutes and, and just jot down the top three or maybe five things that you think are really important, you'll get a sense of what those values are. Are right if you haven't taken the time to think about it already, which again I don't think most people do. So it's a useful um, kind of emotional and and self knowledge exercise to engage in. Those values tell you what you think is important in life, and you will be the most fulfilled and the most successful in a career if you find a, an organization, a company, a nonprofit, whatever it is, that shares similar values. Because the culture of that company is built on those values, its values, and the, that organizational culture determines how you make decisions on a day-to-day basis, how you interact with your clients, with your customers, with your coworkers, with your suppliers, with the environment, with the um, social context in which you're operating, with local communities, right? All of those stakeholders are impacted by the values of whatever organization you're working for. So if you think that environmental sustainability is really, really important, and you go to work for a firm that doesn't really care about it, you are going to be doing things and engaging with stakeholders in a way that's inconsistent with your personal values. That's probably going to make you less than happy. Mm-hmm. And it's also going to, over time, erode your commitment to those personal values. Now, obviously, growth and change through adulthood, right, is mm-hmm. appropriate. Um, you're not going to be the same person at 45 that you are at 20. Mm-hmm. 
But if these things are really meaningful and important to you, then you should think about which ones you're willing to compromise and which ones you're not, mm-hmm. and to make choices that are consistent with those those decisions, right? Mm-hmm. If environmental sustainability is really a core value of yours, but family friendliness is not, you know, you can live with seeing the children that you might someday have only at seven o'clock at night for an hour before they go to bed. That's a legitimate choice. That maybe that's less important to you. You know, you're willing to compromise on that, but you're not about environmental sustainability. Then it, it's really important for you to go to a firm mm-hmm. that has a real demonstrable commitment to sustainability. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is that it's hard to really understand what those values are just by looking at marketing materials, um, both consumer marketing materials and employment marketing materials. And so it's worthwhile as you're um, looking for for jobs and thinking about who you might want to work with, um, asking questions that get the folks that you're interviewing with or informational interviewing with to reveal something about how those values are lived in real time in their in organizational life. Um, so for example, family friendliness is one that's important to me because I have little kids. Um, if I go into an organization that says it's a family friendly firm and I don't see pictures of anybody's kids, I know that they're lying. Right. It's very easy to say we really care about you and you and want you to have a a happy family life. But if nobody feels comfortable, like letting the rest of the people in the firm know that they actually have children that they go home to at seven, eight, nine, ten o'clock at night, then that's not really a family friendly company. They don't really care about your balance. Mm -hmm. Um, So doing a little bit of extra legwork to really interrogate whether the the marketing of this organization matches its lived reality Mm -hmm. is important. Mm -hmm. And again, you can't really do that effectively unless you know your own value system really well. So Mm -hmm. it needs to start from thinking about what's important to you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think one of my bigger takeaways from this conversation is just the link between um, like business values and your own personal values, whether that's in your everyday purchases or the the company you're you're going to work for. And yeah, I think so much of it, like in our in our lives, maybe we we want to optimize, we want to be as happy as possible and have a lot of friends and maybe make, you know, make a good amount of money as well. But for, for businesses, just being in the, the system that they're in, like the profit almost always is like number one, right? So if, if a student said, hey, I have, you know, these traditional Jesuit values of service and environmental uh, sustainability and um, you know caring for the poor and marginalized and I want to make that change in the the business world um, yeah how, how would you advise they they go about doing that or is it like do, do you think we can change the whole the whole system to be a little more in line with those values if there's a big enough desire on the part of the younger generation I mean for sure there is it's, it takes a lot of work and it's not an easy or quick process right so one way that we um, the, and and I'm kind of now uh, contradicting myself a, a little bit but w- one way and possibly the most important way that we can um, ensure that those values are are reflected in the world around us mm-hmm. is through our consumption choices right mm-hmm. so our job is is um, has it's ha- has the greatest impact on our own behavior, but the the way that we interact with the world mm. through the rest of our interactions, right, the, the rest of our patterns of behavior um, are possibly more informative because they reach a broader audience, right? Mm-hmm. 
So, um, so I would say if those Jesuit values, um, which I think are inspiring, um, are really important to you, then think carefully about all of the, the organizations with which you interact and make sure that you're choosing ones that live more closely, um, to those Jesuit values, um, in your workplace, you know, you could easily say, oh, well, that means I need to go work for Catholic charities, or mm. maybe that's not a good example this week, but, um, uh, you know, a service organization. Mm. That doesn't have to be that extreme, right? If that's your calling, then absolutely do it and find one that it, that uh, embodies your values and, and go for it and go out into the world and make um, direct change. That's what I did with my nonprofit in Russia. Um, but um, but most of us are not going to do that, and 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 even if we do, we're not going to do it for that long. Um, so the the way to um, to make that you know change in the world is to be really thoughtful about it from the and moment we enter the workforce, to give all of our effort to those engagements and the the initiatives that support those values, and to make sure most importantly that we're never contradicting them or we're minimizing the degree to which we contradict them. Right. Mm-hmm. So we have an impact on the organizational culture and and the kind of culture around us outside of organizations as well through our behavior. Other people are looking to us constantly, not just us, everybody. We're constantly looking around to understand what's the right thing to do in this situation. What are people doing right now? And we don't often think about why. We're just looking for a way to reduce um, the degree to which we're uncertain about what's appropriate in a given moment. Mm -hmm. So we look to others to see what are they doing and we infer that what they're doing is important and has value mm-hmm. and that they probably have information that we don't have about why that behavior is important. Mm-hmm. No, they don't have any more information than you do, right? Yeah. They're just doing it already. Yeah. So what that means is that we have a responsibility to be thoughtful about our behavior, knowing that others are looking to us for cues about what's important and appropriate. And in the workplace, that implies that we're living our values, that we're making decisions that are consistent with the things we think are important. And the easiest way to do that is to go work for a firm that thinks that the same things that you do are important. Mm -hmm. And part of that requires that we look a little bit beyond the marketing. So I um, I went to uh, a panel talk last year um, that uh, I helped the Markle Center organize on diversity and inclusion in the workplace, and um, we had some um, speakers who work for companies and consulting companies about diversity and inclusion and initiatives. And um, there was a, a a student sitting at my table who was graduating with a philosophy major who asked a question about. Um, Silicon Valley firms and how much they care about their employees. And it was a, an awkward question to me. I mean, he, he had a lot of confidence in asking it, but I didn't really understand what where his thoughts were. So when the, the talk was over a couple of minutes later, I said to him, you know, I'm not sure that you've got it right. <laughs> Uh, what is it that you're thinking about with these these firms that you're talking about and how much they care about you? And he said, uh, you know, I, I have an offer from a couple of companies and both of them really care about taking care of the whole person at work. And so there's, you know, free lunch and and snacks and you can bring your dog to work so that you have, you know, your companionship and um, they have, you know, buses that drive you to and from San Francisco so you can uh, work while you're commuting or at least not have to worry about the commute. And I said, um, do you really think that that means that the companies care about you? 
And he said, you know, I'm a philosophy major. What do I know? <laughs> kind of literally shrugged his shoulders and said, I, you know, I only know what they tell me. But what they tell me is that they do this because they really care about me. So first of all, I thought our philosophy major should engage in better, more rigorous critical thinking than this kid is displaying. But fine. We don't have to trust the marketing. We What we have to trust is our own judgment. And what does your judgment tell you about how much a company cares about you because they do your dry cleaning for you or let you bring your dog to work? Why does that imply that they care about you as a whole person? If there are other cultural cues in the environment, right, at that firm that say, we care about you as a whole person, meaning, for example, that there are deep personal connections among your teammates and that they really support um, folks through struggles and help you acquire new skills and develop as a as a person and a, an employee, that kind of, you know, would suggest that they care about you as a whole person. If what you're telling me is they give you food and they drive you to work so that you can work on the bus with Wi-Fi and you can have your dog there so that you can go walk your dog so that you don't have to hire a dog sitter and that you're capable of having a dog because when you go back to your uh, tiny little apartment at night, um, you're so lonely because you don't have any friends because you spend so much time at work, right? Um, That doesn't suggest that they really care about you as a person, that suggests that they want every second of your leisure time, that they want to do everything they can to keep you from leaving campus and from worrying about all of the things that make us worried about our lives that are not at work, right? So, you know, in the middle of the day, I might think about, like, what are my kids going to eat for supper tonight? Am I going to get to the grocery store before I need to cook for them, for example? But even if you're, you know, 23 and you're and you're just starting out, um, the, the concerns are going to be different, but they're still there, right? Do you have milk? Can you get to the dry cleaner? Uh, have you paid your electricity bill, right? They're, they're these day-to-day concerns that impinge on your thought process. And when these companies take care of you, embrace you to that degree. Mm -hmm. It's not because they care about you necessarily. It's because they don't want you thinking about anything that's not them. Mm -hmm. And to me, that implies that they don't care about you at all. Now, obviously, your interpretation can, can differ, and you can uh, give me plenty of examples of, of firms that do all of those things and actually care about you. That's terrific. Make sure that you're, those are the ones you're working for, mm-hmm. not the ones that tell you, I really want you to be happy, bring your dog to work. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I don't care about bringing your dog to work, right? Like, it's not, I, I, don't, mm-hmm. I don't have a judgment mm-hmm. about that. But that doesn't mean you know, uh, measure for measure that they actually care about you. So we need to really ask questions, use all of our senses to understand and our emotional intelligence more than anything, really, to understand what does this company stand for? What's it doing for me, with me, to me? And do I feel good about that? And again, it comes down to understanding what your personal value set is. Yeah, no, I think that's some that's some truth that people should should think about. It sure is. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd I'd love to wrap up with a couple shorter questions. Sure. So, uh, first of all, what um, what piece of advice would you give to a first year student who's just starting out at Santa Clara? Take whatever class looks good. Right. I mean, obviously, you have to fulfill your distribution requirements and there are things that you need for a major, but don't uh, look at a course uh, offering and say, I don't know how that's going to be useful in the world. Mm -hmm. If it's interesting to you, it'll be useful in the world in the world. Mm -hmm. Do you have any favorite places in the world that you've traveled to? 
Oh, that's a good one. Well, my husband is from Scotland, so we go to oh. Scotland to visit my um, my in-laws pretty much every summer, and I would highly recommend that as a vacation destination. It's kind of not necessarily in the winter, but in the summertime mm. can't be beat. Um, I also think that the place where we are is an amazing spot, and I grew up on the East Coast and then did my PhD in the Midwest and then came to California um, after uh, my PhD. It was never a, a particular destination for me, but I'm really you know, beyond thrilled that this is where I ended up because there's so much culture and natural beauty and, you know, things that we take for granted living here on a day-to-day basis that I, I think we shouldn't take it for granted. We should look around and count our stars every day. Yeah, totally. Once you're once you're in California, it's hard to hard to leave and go anywhere. Else. It sure <laughs> is. Uh, when I was uh, applying for PhD programs, my um, the one of the faculty that I was talking to for advice said uh, I got into UC Berkeley for the PhD, and she said, "Don't go there. You'll never want to leave." Mm. And she was right. <laughs> yeah. If you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? Oh, be thoughtful. Just be thoughtful. It's it, you know we. It's hard to be kind all the time. It's hard to be smart all the time. It's hard to be um, consistent all the time. Those are things that I, I would love for all of us to be able to do. But we can get so much closer if we just put a little bit of thought behind all of our actions. Intentionality is so important. And mm-hmm. it's so hard to accomplish if we're not regularly um, reminding ourselves that we need to do it. Yeah, definitely. And, and finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you? Oh, my goodness. I mean, so Saturdays are difficult for me because I'm Jewish. So like okay. half of my Saturdays, Sunday, yeah. So I'm gonna I'm <laughs> gonna talk about a Sunday. Okay. Um, an ideal Sunday is sleeping in until like eight o'clock, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then uh, spending some time with my kids. Um, maybe going to one of their soccer games. Maybe taking a hike in the in the hills near where we live in the East Bay. Um, just spending some time together and and relaxing and enjoying everything there is. I like to. We have a everybody in this area has a very busy life. And I think it's really important to just take a a day or half a day to recharge and get grounded and, you know, remind yourself of what's important. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing this conversation. It was a lot of fun. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and now on Spotify so that you don't miss an episode. Check out the website at VoicesOfSantaClara.com for some shortened transcripts. And you can like the Facebook page and follow on Twitter. I'll see you next time.